A wise man once said, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Well, the one who inspired those wise words of Solomon stands before us this morning in Mark chapter 3. And the wise one that stands before us will illustrate this divine wisdom that he has. He'll illustrate it to us in the flesh as he actually calls not for just two men to labor with him for a great reward, but twelve men, twelve ordinary men. But before we can uh, see him do that and hear him do that, we have to first travel with him from a synagogue to a mountain. And that's what we're going to do in Mark 3, 7, as I read down to verse 19. Hear the word of the Lord, verse 7. Jesus withdrew his... Let me start that again. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonagoras, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the Canaan, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Here we have Jesus coming out of verses 1 through 6, leaving a synagogue after spending time there healing a man with a withered hand and exposing the withered hearts of the Pharisees. And then immediately we see, as he leaves the synagogue, there's a great crowd of people who are coming from all these regions waiting on him, and they are literally pressing on him physically. He describes it here in Mark as crushing him. And so what Jesus does is he he sees this crowd, and at this point in time, it's not time to address all their needs. He's been doing that. In chapter 1, we saw him do that very physically healing them, relieving them of their demonic oppression. But now it's time for him to escape this pressing crowd, and he does that by getting into a boat to pursue the next phase of his earthly ministry. And then in verse 13, we actually see him do this. He actually begins to go into this new phase of his earthly ministry by leaving this crowd and going up on a mountain where he called those he desired to himself. And the the location of this calling of the twelve is actually significant. In the gospel narratives, there are important things that are happening on mountaintops throughout the gospels. It was on a mountaintop, possibly even the mountain that's referred to here, that Jesus preached his first recorded sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. It was on a mountain that he went alone often to pray. And it was on a mountain that he was transfigured before Peter, James, and John. So it's significant here that he is going to a mountain to initiate a new phase of his earthly ministry. Some commentators say that like Moses received the law, the old covenant on a mountain, Mount Sinai, Jesus here in Mark 3 as one greater than Moses was beginning to unfold the new covenant as he goes to a mountain and summons 12 ordinary men and calls them into an extraordinary ministry. Now, the number of men is also significant, not just the location, but the number that he chose. He calls 12. 
And in some way, it's as if he's calling out a remnant from the nation Israel to form a new nation, a nation through which he would bring about the promises of the new covenant. These men that he chose, these men would become the foundation stones of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession called out to proclaim his excellencies to the world. Not only is the location important and the number of men important, but the timing is important as well. At this point in this narrative, we know that we are halfway through Jesus' earthly ministry. This is about 18 months into his three-year ministry. These men that he called up there with him to the mountain, these men had been following him for quite some time as disciples or learners. But something was about to change here. Now it was time for them to stop being learners and start being laborers. They were being moved out of being disciples into being doers, laborers with Jesus and his work. Now, if I say that and you agree with that, that's good. Maybe you see that there. But understand this, there's something significant about this for you and I as well, right? This might hit home with some of us because many of you have been following Jesus for quite some time. And you need to recognize this morning, it's time for you to start laboring with him, not just following him. Laboring with him is what you're called to do. Not just being learners about him, but laborers with him in his ministry. Because listen, that's why you were called to be a learner, is to know how to do what the Lord Jesus has taught you. Jesus is calling us to become doers of his word, not learners only. And we learn that through the 12 here by this example that God gives us in this special calling of the apostles. And I really pray this morning as I was preparing and thinking through this, I prayed, Lord, please help us see this today. Help us to understand in Mark 3, through the calling of the apostles, what we are called to do as moving out from being learners into laborers in your work. And I pray also this morning that the extraordinary calling of these 12 ordinary men will help encourage us in our calling, even though we are not apostles. At this point, I have to say something about that. You are not apostles. There are no living apostles. There is no apostolic succession. Okay, let me make sure I'm clear on this. We do not have an apostolic calling. That's not what I'm trying to teach you by going through this. But there are parallels to be learned from what happens here on this mountaintop for us. But they had no successors. No man can be a successor of the apostles unless they have seen and been with the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh. And no man can be an apostle unless he can do what these men were uniquely commissioned to do, which would be to work miracles and to bring forth divinely inspired, infallible words from God. That's what it requires to be an apostle. So with that cleared up, that disclaimer made, let me just say this. I still think in this text in particular that we learn something that is very applicable to us. I think we learn that God still chooses ordinary people to do an extraordinary work that will bring him glory on the earth. And that's what you're called into. All right? So what we're going to do now is we're going to actually look at verses 13 to 15 again, because this is really going to be the bulk of where I'm going to focus this morning. I will come back to verses 11 and 12 the next time I preach, because they actually tie into the latter part of this chapter. But we're not going to address that now. But let's begin here by reading this and thinking through this again clearly in this small section. It says, speaking of Jesus, and he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Next, verse 14, and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that, there's your purpose clause, so that they might be with him 
and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Here, here in verses 13 to 15, we learn that these 12 ordinary men were, number one, called to be diligent disciples. They were called to be diligent disciples. Secondly, we learn that they were appointed to be dedicated ambassadors. Dedicated ambassadors. And thirdly, we learn that they were commissioned to be the light-filled servants. And I'll explain that when we get to it. They were called to be disciples, ambassadors, and servants. We see this in the text. It's very clear. It's very simple. That's probably why I got it. It's easy to see. But I want us to all see it together so we can worship the Lord through this. Look with me at verse 13 again in particular. Mark says here that he went up, speaking of Jesus, he went up on the mountain and then highlight called. He called to him those whom he desired and they came to him. Well, the first thing that we learn here is that Jesus called out men he desired for a personal ministry. That's what discipling is about. It's about personal ministry. Now, he does this through a sovereign and personal desire in his own heart. But he is calling them out with authority here to spend time with him personally. Understand this, the the apostles were called out by their master. And that's what Jesus is if you're a disciple. He's your master. And they're called out by their master to be his, no one else's, diligent disciples. Diligent learners. This calling was given out of personal affection for them and also this personal, really, application of here's what I'm going to teach you so you can go do. And understand this, the calling was given to draw these men close to their master in communion. That's the only way to disciple someone. I'm not talking about the Lord's Supper. I'm talking about communion, fellowship. The calling was given to them to draw them into this relationship with him on a very personal level. They've been following him up to this point as disciples, but they hadn't been actually getting close to him, communicating with him in such a way that they would actually be prepared to go out and do the work of a disciple. So it begins here with him calling them specifically as disciples to become something greater, which would be apostles. But to do that, they need to be diligent in their fellowship with him. And that's really how Jesus transforms every ordinary person into a diligent disciple. He calls us to be with him in, note this, in constant communion and constant preparation. That's what it means to follow a teacher, right? There's got to be this communication and there's got to be this preparation taking place. That's how he transforms us into being diligent disciples. The apostles and all Christians today can do this. We can become diligent disciples of our master by simply spending time with him in communion by being, number one, in constant prayer, and number two, in constant preparation. Is that, is that what people would describe your life as a disciple of Christ? Do they recognize that you're constantly in communion with Jesus and constantly preparing to serve Jesus, knowing his word? It's important that we get this. It was important for the apostles to get this. For them to do the the great work of their ministry, they had to spend constant time with him. They had to stay with him consistently. They had to prepare themselves for this great endeavor that they were called into. And that meant they needed to be diligent, diligent disciples. Let me show you a couple things that's important about this, about being diligent in prayer. Look at what diligence in prayer will accomplish in the church in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Notice what diligence in prayer accomplished in the early church. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's doctrine. 
and fellowship. That's encouragement. And to breaking the breaking of bread and the prayers. They were devoting themselves to praying together. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Do you see what diligence in prayer produced, accomplished in the church? It, it, it united this church. It united them together in their mission. They came together under the preaching of the word. And they came together in prayer for their call to go into the world. And they were making a deep impact on that culture just by their diligence in prayer and in preparation. It united them as one body. And it still does that today when we pray together. Are we diligent in prayer as a church, as individuals? Are you diligent in your prayer time? Or is it something you just happen to do occasionally, maybe just at mealtime? Are you in constant communion with your Savior as a disciple? That's the only way you're going to learn from him is to submit your requests, your desires, your concerns, your praises to him. And he speaks to you in his word to answer them. Look at what diligence and preparation produces in Christ's disciples in 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3, verse 10. The Apostle Paul, writing here to Timothy, talking about really being diligent to follow the example of the one who went before him, which would be Paul in this case. But Paul is saying, I am following Christ, and follow me as I follow Christ. But to do that, you need to know something about him. And you're going to be ready to do your work of ministry as a disciple, as a servant, by being diligent in your preparation, by staying in the word. Verse 10 says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings, what happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you... Continue or abide in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, competent, equipped for every good work. Do you want to be equipped for every good work as a disciple of Christ? Then if you want that, you're going to have to be prepared for that. And the only way to be prepared for that is to be a diligent student of the word of God. This diligence that Paul was calling for Timothy to have in his ministry, it did do something to Timothy. Timothy wavered at times. You know, at times, at the beginning of this letter, he's saying, Timothy, you, you're going to have to stir up these coals. You're going to have to stand up, you know, when these guys oppose you. It stirred up confidence whenever Timothy studied the sacred writings. It prepared him for the work he was called into. And it was a hard work at Ephesus where he was called. There are many false teachers. There are many errors. He was a young preacher. They're all old folks, and he's got to come in and change things. That's never any fun. He's called to do this work, though, 
because he's been given the word of God to guide him. And he's relying on that. And, and that's what it means to be a diligent disciple, is to be reliant on communion with God in prayer and in preparation, speaking to him and hearing from him in his word. And like the apostles, every Christian today should be in constant communion with our master through prayer, through preparation. We should often sit at Jesus' feet and speak with him and listen to his word. We should often be in prayer about the work that we are called to go out into as well. Let me ask you a question. Do you want to be a diligent disciple of your master this morning? I think we all want that, right? We want to be diligent disciples of our master. We want to be united by his fellowship. And for us to do that, we're going to have to be constant in fellowship with him. Constant, diligent in our prayer life. Alone and together. United in his fellowship. And to be a diligent disciple, we, we, we have to also be constant again in the study of his word. If you want to be a diligent disciple and you want to have confidence in your ministry, that's what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to spend time in the book. And listen, sometimes anyone who's ever prepared to preach or teach, sometimes sitting down in the chair is the hardest thing to do to prepare to preach. Sometimes we know what we want to say and hear, but we actually have to sit down and study to make sure it's going to come out clear. I'm praying that happens today. Um, but as we study and we learn more of Jesus as we study the text, we have much more confidence to speak with authority. I know about whom I am speaking because I know him personally i know him through communion and prayer and through preparation in his word now again we're not called apostles proper we're not called to be apostles proper but like the apostles we should long to be jesus's diligent disciples we should long to be diligent disciples of our master constantly in communion with him in prayer and preparation. That's what I see as I look here at verse 13. But let's go on to verse 14a. In verse 14a, the first part, Mark says that he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, which is interesting to, to catch there, isn't it? To be with them. Well, if you're going to represent him, you better spend time with him. That's what it means to be an apostle. You're a sent out one, a special sent messenger of the Lord Jesus Christ to represent him to the world. That's what would be their calling. So the second thing that we learn here is that Jesus appointed men to spend time with him to prepare them for a representative ministry. Not just a personal ministry, but a representative ministry. The apostles were appointed, appointed, the apostles were appointed by not simply their master, but their king to this ministry. They were appointed by King Jesus to be his dedicated ambassadors. Now, this appointment was, was given to make them faithful in their representation of the king. Do you think that's important? If you're going to have to represent a king... And, and you're going to stand before others to say, this is what my king is like. You better get to know your king really well. It could be a costly thing if you misrepresent him, right? Well, they had to spend time with them, with him, and so that's what he desires. He desires for them to spend time with him here, which is great to hear, isn't it? If we're called to be Christ's ambassadors today, not in the apostolic sense, if we're called to be his representatives, though, as Christians... Isn't it good to know that Jesus wants us to spend time with him to prepare us for that? In other words, he desires us to be with him. That's what he's saying here. And he will invest in us what he wants us to share with others through his word. I'm just glad that when I read this that I can somewhat testify and amen the apostles here seeing that Jesus can transform ordinary men like them into dedicated ambassadors of Christ. 
Does that ever just shock you? I mean, you know you, right? I mean, are you a great and noble person all the time? Maybe on Sunday you are. But how about on Monday morning when the wife turns on the light, right? Maybe not. Yet God has chosen the weak things of this world to confound the wise. He's chosen to work through our weakness to magnify his grace and his greatness. And that's what he does with 12 ordinary men here, and he does that with ordinary people like us as well. He can make us into dedicated ambassadors. In verse 14a, he's appointing these men to honor his name, and he desires for them to learn how from him personally and practically. What do they do? They go with him as he goes into the marketplace, as he goes into the city, and they watch him interact with sinners, publicans, Pharisees. Well, this is preparing them to know how he wants them to react to those same people when they go out into their ministry in the future. The apostles and all Christians need to learn this. We need to learn that we are called into a representative ministry. We can, by God's grace and his desire here, we can do this. We can become dedicated ambassadors if we're willing to honor our king's desire. His desire is for us to follow his example. What kind of example did Jesus give us? Jesus was a holy servant. He was set apart in this world, and he was a servant to this world. And that's what he's calling us to be. We need to be set apart. Our lives need to be distinct, unique, standing out from the world. The things the world laughs at, endorses, and encourages, we should not laugh at, endorse, or encourage. We should be in the world, but not of the world. We should be standing out uniquely from the world around us, the culture around us, as it is drowning in sin and depravity. And they should see us as their only hope, because we have the words of eternal life. And we are here to show them it does change you. The power of God changes, changes us from the inside out. It sets us apart in the world so that we can be servants to the world. Jesus did this. Jesus, King Jesus, he did this. He humbled himself to become a holy servant to the suffering. In Mark 1, we won't go back and read it, but in Mark 1, at the end, you can see he's, he's came out of a synagogue again, and there's a crowd, but they're following him now to, to Peter's mother-in-law's house. And she's laying there sick with a fever, and he, he is approached by Peter, and Peter says, my mother-in-law is sick. Nobody likes a sick mother-in-law, right? Nobody likes that. And so he comes in, and he raises this woman up from this fever, and he, he heals her. And then outside the door is this whole gathering of these defiled and disgusting, diseased and, and demonized people. And I always come to that text, and I'm just thinking, the stench had to be horrible. Think of the time period and the culture, the disease and the nature of their infirmities. All the aromas of sin right there in the nostrils of King Jesus and what's he do? Does he say, you're all healed? No, he spends time healing them individually, carefully, personally, sacrificially. He's in the world, and he's serving the world. And we're called to follow him in our representation of him as, as his dedicated ambassadors. That's what we're called into. Our personal dedication to our king should reveal Jesus to the world. Look at 1 Peter, 1 Peter 2. Our personal dedication to be set apart in the world to represent Jesus should reveal Jesus to those around us. In 2.9 it says this, That you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you, there's your purpose clause. Here's why you've been chosen. Here's why you've been made a disciple, an ambassador. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to do what? Partake of the world's pleasures? No, to stand out in the world. To abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, unbelievers, honorable. Stand out. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. They should see Jesus in our life. They should see a, such a, a, a glimpse of our Savior that, that has, has penetrated our hearts, that's called us out of the darkness and into the light, that when they, they try to find accusations against us, they cannot. All they can say is, it's like he's been with Jesus. And one day, whether they believe or not, when the Lord Jesus comes again, every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is our Lord because we have been personally dedicated to represent him. Now, look what practical dedication to our king should reveal to the world in 2 Corinthians 5. We are to be dedicated ambassadors and we are to be dedicated personally in our life of holiness and sanctification, but we're also be to be dedicated to him in our practical application of our ministry that represents Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, the Apostle Paul writes this, For the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us, constrains us, compels us. That's what he's saying. What's he going to say after this? He's going to talk about the ministry that he has been called into, the ministry that we are called into, and what's driving that ministry. What are we personally dedicated to, and what are we practically pursuing? That is the glory of Jesus through the salvation of the lost. There is this practical dedication to our king here that's driven by the love of Christ. We are to be the hands and the feet and the mouthpiece of the Lord Jesus Christ and represent his love passionately. We see what that looks like as we work through this. Verse 14, he goes on to say, Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Verse 15 says, And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regarded him thus no longer. Then look at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. It's the love of Christ that's controlling that ministry here. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. We're we're controlled by his love. It's made manifest through our actions here. God making an appeal through us, We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Practical dedication to our king should reveal Jesus to the world through our compelling of them to know him are going after them to show them his love for them. Practical dedication to represent Jesus means we are to go to them and say, this Jesus is the one who has driven me to come to you, and I am begging you to be reconciled to him, for he has done what you cannot do on your own to be reconciled to God. He has given his life in your place. 
practical dedication to honor Jesus as a dedicated ambassador will cause you to plead with the lost. Don't tell me you represent Jesus. Don't tell me about your Christian life if you're unwilling to plead with those who are perishing. The Lord Jesus compelled his apostles to do that. And if we're going to be his faithful representatives, we should do that. Now listen, I know God's sovereign. God saves the sinner. But he's given us the divine privilege of being his representative to tell them how the sinner can be saved, to point them to the reconciling work of his son. And every Christian, as well as the apostles, should do this faithfully. We should live a holy life. We should be set apart for a holy work with a sacrificial spirit of compassion like Christ. Do you want to be a dedicated ambassador of Christ the King? Do you want to reveal His worth in the world? Then be set apart from the world. And they're going to ask you why you're set apart, why you are different. And you're going to tell them about your King's high calling. You'll give them a reason for the hope that lies within you. Do you want to reveal his love to the world? Then serve the world compassionately like Christ did. Go serve your neighbor. You see a guy working in his yard? Go ask if you can help mow. You have a neighbor who you haven't talked to? Take them some food. And when they ask you about why you're being so kind, you tell them about the kindness of your Savior and your Lord that compels you to come to them. Listen, saints, for the lost, this is as close to heaven as they will ever come. For the saints, this is as close to hell as we're ever going to come. That should compel us to go to our lost friends and neighbors and go to them and say, this is the love of Christ that I've experienced and there's hope for you and I just want to share this with you. That's what the apostles were called to do, appointed to do. Now, we're not appointed to be apostles, but we're sent out by the king just as they are. And so we should long for what they long for, which was to be dedicated as ambassadors of Christ. Walking worthy of our king, weeping over the lost, as Jesus did. Now, thirdly, let's look at Mark three fourteen b to 15. Here Mark tells us that Christ not only appointed them that they might be with him, but he did so that he might send them out. You guys know the Great Commission? That's what it means. To be sent out. He appointed them to send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So the third thing that we learn here is that Jesus commissioned these men for not just a personal ministry or a representative ministry, but an active ministry. These men were being moved from being learners into being laborers. They were commissioned by the Lord to be his, not just servants, but I believe commissioned to be his delight-filled servants, joy-driven servants, joy over the fact that he chose them, joy over the fact that he forgave them, joy over the fact that he's going to use them. Therefore, they willingly give their lives to him as servants. I think about if we were here in this this building on a Sunday morning and somebody's child ran out into the street and one of you saw it and you ran into the street to rescue that child and you you did and yet you died in that rescue attempt. I wonder how the family would feel about your spouse and how that they would want to serve that spouse all the days of their life because of their appreciation for that rescue. And so it is with these men. They knew what they were. They were a bunch of ordinary sinners saved by an extraordinary God personally. And they wanted to serve him. This commission, I think, is given to them to compel them in their joy into the Lord's mission. 
to proclaim liberty to those who were in bondage to sin and to comfort those who were afflicted because of sin. And this is where we have something in common with the apostles in our commission. We are commissioned to do what they were called to do. It says they're sent out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And I'm not going to go there with the casting out demon stuff, all right? Here's what I'm going to say about that. We are commissioned to do what they did, but not in the same way they did it. We are commissioned to do what they were called to do, not in the same way, but with the same message. We have the same message to preach. We are to go out and do what they did by going out into all the nations and making disciples by proclaiming the gospel. You know why? Because it is the gospel of God that is the dunamis power of God that can break the chains of spiritual darkness and despair and set free those who are enslaved by sin and Satan. And if you don't believe that, then you have nowhere to go in your Christian walk because the only way, the only way in which unbelievers can be saved is by the power of God that comes to the miracle of his word. The Holy Spirit empowers it. The word dunamis the power of God unto salvation. Dunamis means dynamite. It's the inherent power of God is wrapped up in his message about the cross. It's that power that can break free those who are demonized, discouraged, trapped in sin. It's a joy to know that he does that through us as his messengers, as his hopefully delight-filled servants. We see that here. I just have great joy in knowing that he chose these 12 men and he can choose 12 men like this or 120 or thousands to be delight-filled servants because he is sovereign and he is good. And he calls us not because he needs us in this service, but he calls us because he wants us in this service. He wants us to be with him, to testify to his greatness and his grace. We see that testified to here in this, in this narrative because he calls these 12 to him personally to teach them, to commune with them, to serve them as an example of what he wants them to do, to send them out, to fulfill his ministry when he leaves, when he ascends into glory. He's preparing them for that. They don't know it yet. 18 months. They got 18 months. And he's going home. And he's going to leave them to represent him. And they need to be delight-filled servants if they're going to do that. The apostles and, and all Christians today should be like that. We should be delight-filled servants of the Lord. And we will be if we recognize the Savior's sovereign mercy that has made us who are defiled clay pots. He has made us into instruments of grace to be used by his Spirit to move people to salvation, to bring people to salvation through the message we faithfully, joyfully proclaim. I think that's what caused the apostles to do what they did so passionately. You recognize that every apostle, I believe, save John, died a martyr's death. Horrific deaths. Peter was crucified upside down. I believe Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross. I think what caused these apostles to go into this service so delightfully, knowing the cost, because they would see the cost. All they had to do was wait 18 months. They would see the cost of following Christ. But I think what moved them and made them willing to move into action was this worshipful pursuit of magnifying Jesus' mission. They did what they did to make much of Jesus. Their sacrifice, their service was delight-filled because it was about Jesus being displayed to the world so that sinners can be saved, yes, but that Jesus would be praised much more. That's what they wanted. That's what they pursued. I think that's what moved and caused the Apostle Paul to pursue his mission. Look with me at one last cross-reference in 2 Corinthians 4. I think Paul was the epitome of a delight-filled servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 5, let me start there. 
for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus be manifested in our bodies. This is delight-filled servanthood. He is crushed, it seems. He is beaten down. He is almost destroyed. But he says, I'm going to keep going, because I want to show you Christ. Then in verse 12, Verse 11, we who live always are always given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Here's a delight-filled servant statement. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Just being amazed that God chose him to do this, caused it to overcome his weakness and his fear. He says, verse 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension or all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This was no light momentary affliction, saints. This is harsh suffering. But there was great delight in it because it helped Paul to magnify Jesus and this drove his service. That's what should drive our service as well. Do you want to be a delight-filled servant of the Lord Jesus Christ like Paul? Do you want to willingly serve him and consider the honor of what it means to be called to be his, his disciple, representative, and his servant? Your holy instruments that belong to Christ because of his grace. Do you want to worshipfully serve Jesus as Paul did? Then consider the mercy of your Savior. Consider what he did to save you. And you will joyfully, worshipfully serve him. Understand this. We read that, that passage in Peter that I read earlier. It tells us that we are mercied missionaries. We stand out from the world and proclaim Christ in the world because of the mercy that we've received. When you think about that, you'll become a worshipful servant of Christ. And in that, I think, again, we can relate to the apostles. That's what they desired. The Lord had commissioned them into his service. And like the apostles, we should be delighted by this. We should be a delight-filled group of servants here. Because we understand this, we, we have a, a sight of what they did that they didn't see, because we see it in history, but we see that these delight-filled servants, these apostles, oh, they brought praise to Jesus, not just in their lifetime, but through the centuries. They have brought him praise throughout the world, and that was their delight. And I'm sure in heaven they're delighting in that now. This should be our delight. The Lord used these 12 ordinary men to turn the world upside down. And here's the good news, right? He can still and will still use ordinary men and women to do just that today. If we will be willing to stand on the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' foundation. And that foundation and that doctrine was established by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And we are called to labor with him to make it manifest to the world. 
so that everyone will see how glorious our Savior is. And listen, saints, every one of us can do this. If you are a Christian, you are called to do this and you are equipped to do this. That's good news, right? It doesn't matter what your personality is like. It doesn't matter what your skill set is. If you've been called by Jesus, you have been empowered by the Holy Spirit to do his work. And that's, that's very, very comforting for me because I couldn't do it on my own. I'm also comforted by the list that we read there in Mark 3. If God could use people like Peter and Andrew and James and John, then he can use and will use people like us to magnify his worth through our work here on the earth. That's why he personally called us to be his diligent disciples, his dedicated ambassadors, his delight-filled servants. And let me say this today. If if you're here this morning and, and you hear me talking about these things and you do not feel like this lesson applies to you, I want to give you some hope. If you don't feel like you're a disciple of Christ after listening to this, or an ambassador, or a servant, or you don't even want to be, if you're not a follower of Christ at all today, I want to tell you this. You can be. Salvation comes by God's grace through faith alone in Christ and his work. He has made a way for ordinary men and women to come into an extraordinary relationship with him. Just look around at those here in this room. He did this. He made this way by going to a cross and dying in our place, receiving the penalty that we deserve for our sins so that we could be reconciled to God and forgiven eternally of all unrighteousness and then called into his service. And in that we can all say amen, right? We can rejoice. Let's do that in prayer. Father, today... We want nothing more than to be diligent disciples and dedicated ambassadors and delight-filled servants. But Lord, for, for that to take place, we're going to have to move from being learners into being laborers, into being hearers and into being doers. Lord, I pray that as we are equipped as a church, that we would grow in such a, a way that, that it would Take us deeply into your word so that we would come out deeply refreshed and energized to go into the world and proclaim the excellencies of you and the work of Christ to the lost so that many would be saved, God, so that your name would be exalted, so that you would be praised now and forever by the redemption of sinners that magnify the greatness of Christ's sacrifice. Jesus, I pray that you help us to put this into application. I pray that we can be amazed by this. I pray it humbles us to make us willing to do these things out of the joy of knowing who it is that called us into this. Lord, I pray this for your praise and for our good and in Jesus' name. Amen.